0: all right okay so thank you everybody for joining into our podcast traveling time with books uh which spotlight some remarkable books on indian history and uh, my Co-host Kamini and I are very grateful for the opportunity to talk to our favorite kind of people, authors, we have Peggy Mohan here today um, and these interactions are exceedingly rewarding for us. But before we move on, a little bit about um, Kamini and me. Um, So Kamini is an award-winning faculty at King's Business School, London. Uh, I am the founder and CEO of Bookosmia, which is India's largest publishing platform for young voices. And uh, as you would have realized, Kamini and I have very diverse work journeys. Um, We are united in our love for Urdu poetry, I think for uh, romanticizing our hometowns of Delhi and Lucknow, (laughs) respectively, and our common B-school alma mater, which is I am Lucknow. But more importantly, this podcast is about the conviction that knowing history is for everyone, not just the experts and the academicians. And knowing history also helps us make a lot more sense of our present. So I hope the listeners continue to join in in this passion project that we have. These podcasts are available on Audible, Spotify and all other major audio platforms. So today we are very, very excited to have with us uh, Peggy Mohan. Um, a little bit about Peggy before wrapping her in. So Peggy was born in Trinidad, West Indies and uh, earned a PhD in linguistics from the University of Michigan. She has taught linguistics at JNU, at Jamia Millia, and other centers. She's the author of three novels and has contributed to reputed publications such as Economic and Political Weekly and IIC Quarterly. She's developed educational television program for children, learned cartoon animation, opera singing, um, and was a teacher teaching music in Pasant Valley School, New Delhi. So we're in conversation today to talk to Peggy about her remarkable book, Wanderers, King's Merchants, the story of India through its languages. Welcome, Peggy. We're so happy to have you here finally.
1: Thank you
0: so those that introduction just speaks of a very well-lived life um, is there any particular role that you uh, enjoyed particularly more than the others in all the wonderful things that you've been up to
1: it's hard to say because basically what tends to happen is i get into one particular thing i'm not good at this time sharing and multitasking these days i'm only thinking about the same sort of stuff as i did when i was writing my book When I'm drawing or painting, I'm only thinking about that. Uh, And various other little things like that that I get into. Uh, But this is the most exciting for me now, because in a way, it's my life is turning full circle from the things I thought I would do from the time I was 12 years old, which I gave up for a while and got into other things. And now I'm back to it without any let up in the excitement and uh, the sense of uh, knowing where i want to take it Oops, my internet is unstable can you hear me
0: yes can hear you very well we can hear you well and uh, thanks for that i think uh, so much for us also to get inspired by various things that we can try our hands at and enjoy and i just i just love how well rounded this whole comes together <laughs> so thanks for that uh, sharing that peggy all right so let's get started about the book um usually uh, those of you who've been listening to us um we introduce every book um with some couplet in urdu um and we end like that um so here is about language and i think this particular episode is so much more relatable to every listener out there because it's about language it's something that we all use we have previously spoken about the yf nama and we've spoken about um rebel sultans of the deccan and uh, these are areas as fascinating as they are but to someone who is really interested in it but the theme of our book today is extremely relatable uh, it being language and i couldn't help but recall um a few lines by Faiz, um, which go like this And I think it so beautifully talks about so many things that language mean to us about speaking up, standing up for yourself about communicating and so much more. So this book um, is fascinating because it introduces us to another facet of language, which is about how it helps our historians pick out these packets of information of how the language evolved and tell us a lot more about the times that it has seen. But we'll come to that later. Before we get into that, Peggy, I just have to tell you (laughs) that on page 65, I remember reading this where you've written, I know how much of ourselves, my grandmother and I brought into this work. Mm -hmm. And when I read it, um, I paused and I kind of chuckled to myself because I realized how much of myself I'm bringing into this book as a reader. Uh, And that's where the relatability of uh, everything around language. Um, So as someone who grew up uh, in Lucknow with. Lakhnavi Hindi and you know that underlying generous sprinkling of Urdu, and now married to a Kannadiga, I live in Bangalore, which is so multilingual that a ten-minute walk in the park will have you hear at least four or five different languages. Um, so much of the book was relatable, and so much of it uh, was a discovery that I had kind of uh, you know lived through as a transition from being from knowing only Hindi and um, Urdu. Um, to now being introduced to a language down south, which is Canada, And um, when your book spoke about all of these linguistic aspects, you know, um, we're talking of post prepositions and uh, verb endings and retroflexion, I could um, relate with it so much because when I transition from speech, knowing only Hindi to Kannada and I would say oh the sentences abruptly end there is like in Hindi I would say aapka naam kya hai whereas in Kannada I would just say nimhes Renu," and there's no ending there's no hair which comes or when I would see that my kids are struggling with pronouncing her in the right places like Gandhi is a challenge so either they'll say Gandhi or they say Gandhi um, and I used to wonder why that is and uh, um, further when you spoke of the pronouns being a part of the verbs in Malayalam and a similar trend in Canada so yes very long winding and very anecdotal for me but it was fantastic um, to learn of all of these concepts retroflexion Uh, ergetivity, diglossia, I hope I'm saying all of these right. Um, But I um, kind of wonder whenever this kind of new information dawns on me very often, is this something that I should be knowing of only now? Um, Do you think um, there is merit in having some introduction to how languages are structured when we are studying in school for those 14 years we have language being taught to us?
1: That's Uh, complicated because some of what uh, you have just talked about in my book, uh, I don't know where else it's been written in India except to some extent in very technical uh, books. What's different in my book is that I've been putting in new ideas even as they occur to me and they get developed. Yesterday I met my Penguin editor and I told her in the next book I'm writing about some things that uh, no one else has written. So it's Kind of strange if anyone has heard of them, because they're just sort of coming to life right now. Uh, as to school, I think that there's quite a lot in school that we really teach wrong. I mean, the notion that uh, Hindi is just plain Sanskrit, and that kids just don't know what that is, because they here they are wondering, well, but all these karaks we have to learn in Sanskrit, They don't seem to be in Hindi, or does Hindi have Sandhi? Does only Sanskrit have Sandhi? So there is this, that the impression, it's a lazy impression that the system has given, that we don't need to do any proper teaching or new thinking of how to teach classes. Whereas in Russia, the same things, very similar to what are in our languages, like they do have the difference between uh, Hua and Hogya. Uh, the p- compound verbs, they have something like that. And they struggle like anything to write about it and explain it to foreigners. And they ask, well, how do you do it in India? I said, we just let everyone get it wrong. Um, and there is no notion. I remember going into a children's Sanskrit class where the professor, was, the teacher was teaching about karaks and he was saying, uh, and that many is the first karak, it's not, it's the third karak. Um, but I didn't want to get into it. But why are we doing this to the kids? Because he has no concept of how the whole sentence is turned around and Hindi is different from English and Sanskrit wasn't always like this and it is a process. But when you told me a little bit about your background, I'm mighty tempted to turn the whole interview around and interview you because what I'm about to write about in next the next chapter in my next book is precisely the situation you're talking about, the um, collision of uh, two systems on the north-south border and how Dravidian features and North Indian features somehow come together. And I'm not so interested in what they say. That I can find out. You just need to open your ears and listen. I need to know a bit about the history because this blend of history and linguistic data is precious because if you just... Use your imagination, you will guess a lot of things wrong. Like you might say, Oh, you know, people spoke Urdu like Dakini, and over years it got to be like, you know, standard literary Urdu. It's not actually true. It's probably a lot the other way around. I need to find out because a lot of the things I've been finding are not quite the way you imagine that they would be when you put history in with it. So what I'm trying to do is get this mix of how people speak and the history of when they moved, when they shifted, what were the women doing, the ones who raised the kids who learned the new language. All these kinds of things have a very strong bearing, but up till now, linguists were not thinking about history and historians who are thinking about linguistics and to me i just find that the picture is so incomplete without the two of them being together
0: right no that's that's really fascinating and as i teach um i was looking at my uh, daughter who's in grade four for them sources of history are already being Classified as archaeological, um, then through your artifacts and literary, and in literary they are being told about language as being one of the reasons, and that's great for. I don't remember reading anything like that when I was growing up. So hopefully we are make, trying to make some amends and trying to, you know, get these new learnings which are coming in incorporated um, into our children's syllabus so that they're better off. But uh, that, that was very interesting. And I, I um, like I said, I'm very thankful. There were so many things which are just everyday occurrence, you know, uh, that I made fun of that I can't pronounce the word l- this is in Marathi. Uh, it's not in Hindi, Hurley, Hurley, for example. Yes. So a lot of this made sense when I read the book. And I think I would strongly recommend anyone picking another language to the native language to read it uh, a lot of it makes sense when you understand why and what right all right so um i'll kind of progress to the next uh, question that i had and uh, we spoke about the power that language has mm-hmm. um and what it means to so many different people so for of course there is a sense of very strong identity for some for some, it's this uh, nostalgia and emotions. And there's also a lot of pride, which many of us have in the language um, that is a native language. Um, but from your book, um, what was a fascinating takeaway for me uh, was that in very crisp and clear terms, um, it seemed like we are saying that there is no purity of language or race, and that can be now concluded with evidence. Is that a fair takeaway, Peggy?
1: Well, yes. I mean, if human beings have been around for, and now they're saying 200,000 years, 2 lakh years, uh, anybody who's not mixed at all would be so hopelessly inbred that they would be uh, unable to function. There has been mixing all along, but this whole mixing thing has to do with when you set your cutoffs. Like, if the first Brahmins who came into India didn't have women with them, or presumably had so few that it almost didn't matter. Uh, for a while, they, it didn't matter that they had that they married women or white people in the native lands of South America. It didn't matter that they didn't have women. And after a certain point, then they, people started saying, well, you know, whatever we have now is pure. And that... Uh, it's just a comfortable way of making a state a political statement about who's the elite and who isn't nobody's pure, and uh, I would like to be able if I can i didn't look at Tamer at all Th uh, in the first book be- and many people were upset with me for that because I have to look back much further and I need stronger tools which I hope I will have with this next book because the People who made that migration, people call them Dravidians, uh, they did not come into an empty land. They met people here too. So even then, something was happening because all of this um, that you talk of, the which I just pronounced, and uh, the various other retroflex sounds, which are so prolific in Tamil and Malayalam, uh, they not it's come with the Dravidian migrants. It came, they were there already. They were amplified. Because one interesting thing that came as a shock to me was listening to a video from Australia, native Australians, first Australians, who got to Australia before white people left Africa. It's that long ago. Talking with, uh, ra, da, da. what else? Ah, yeah, that kind of thing. Ra. They have these sounds they don't have the uh they don't have that those are a little bit more I, I have to trace that back because that is this whole story in itself why where did it come from why did it only get um, traction in certain parts of india but not in the place where sanskrit first came just the same way why does why do south indian languages have all the retroflexes but it's the tribal languages which have so few of them which had them first so it's all kinds of, this is where history really gets you going because um it's not the way you would have imagined
0: right i think it also helps us like we said in the beginning that it helps us deal with the present a lot better because if we can easily puncture all those ideas big ideas of having pride because we are certain particular race we are more pure or Sanskrit is the mother of all languages. My language is, you know, so many assumptions that we have. We carry... And mother is a
1: very funny word to use for a language that was brought by the men. So there's another very strong issue that comes up and even more in the next book because the difference between how women contributed and what men contributed and uh, that tells quite a lot about what can pass on. Mother tongue is a funny word because it's actually absolutely right. People learn what they know instinctively is from their mothers and what they make a strong effort to learn because it has to do with identity tends to come from the fathers.
0: Right. So, did you foresee any? Did you face or foresee any uh, backlash when you were coming up with this book? Which for everyday readers, I'm sure the research has been out, and I am aware that you know so much conversation about race theory and all. Always been there, but now this is a book for everyday readers. Did you fear any backlash from the people, especially given the political scenario?
1: I thought I would get it, but lately, but even in this book and my second book, which was actually about Gujarat in the years between 2002 and 2006 uh I didn't get backlash and I'm not very sure whether it was written carefully and didn't hit any of the sore points Mm -hmm. or in this case I am surprised I'm not about the political back backlash maybe yes I did expect people to wonder about um Saying that men came from abroad, but not women, except for the first migrants to India seventy thousand years ago, or actually sixty five imagine it taking five thousand years to migrate from um Yemen to India. That tells you that they weren't actually migrating. they were just being, and they kept spreading, just like um the people in the northeast were not migrating into the northeast, the nagas and so on, the mizos manipuris they were being and they just kept spreading which is why you see so many women among them who came but um get me back to where we were uh,
0: right. no you answered the question uh, it was about i would have thought that too many people would take offense to, you know, the clear findings which are there, but that's, well, that's not good only to know.
1: political people. I was very worried that I said a number of things that linguists had not yet said, okay. or some might not have said, and to my utter shock, not just the best linguists in India, but some of my old professors who I wondered, uh, what did they think of me when I was a little raw kid? They've been happy and uh, apparently Romila Thapar and Irfan Habib have mentioned my book on some of their things uh right. it's most it's <laughs> surprising I, I, I expected a bit of kicking one person did uh from the south say I didn't talk enough about what happened in Hyderabad and so on. I well yeah but there's another book it's happening now and if he's around he can write. right, like,
0: <laughs> right yeah can. Yeah, I think as to whoever I spoke about the book, um, their first uh, reaction was, uh, What is the take on Tamil? So um, that, is... I mean. that is. It's not <laughs> so
1: easy. Yeah, I have to have super archaeological tools to dig back into the past because right. this is a language which came up in a collision, which is. Can I? I just am tired of all these uh, cold calls coming to me. Uh, Okay. Uh, Okay, it's a language that came up approximately, maybe 9,000 years ago, that migration came through the Indus Valley and went on south. So you're looking into something where first there's, there's no literary material, because no one was writing. There Is very little, well, there's genetic material. We have to look at the genetics. We have to triangulate backwards. What were the existing tribes in India speaking like? They were, they too have been influenced. So you don't have a clean model from the tribes because just as the Dravidians uh, were influenced by the tribes, they influenced them too, which is why in the north, the tribes are very different in their language from the south though we know they're the same people, more or less. So Tamil is gonna take a lot of work, which is why I first have to be more and more sure which way I'm guiding myself going into the past that I don't end right. up making the wrong kinds of guesses. Because right. there are times, for example, if there are Austroasiatic asiatic features in the tribal languages of Jharkhand, yeah? Oh, the question people ask is, did the people from Jharkhand go to Southeast Asia? It's a very reasonable question. Now, genetics has said no, there was a migration from Southeast Asia. Now, you need this kind of evidence, or you end up this, uh, assuming things that can be the exact opposite of, of what happened. It's nice to have these models. I'm also playing around with a lot of things that happened in Africa to, to get comparisons, to see if this kind of thing is possible. And um, this situation uh, it reminds me of india these were only men you know this kind of
0: right right all right so you're really looking forward to what's following next uh in terms of your next book and one last um, question from me before i pass it on to kamini she's been waiting with some oh. amazing questions herself um so uh, it's about the title of the book peggy there is so much that the book um unpacks there's obviously all of these um linguistic concepts and now um having to answer i understand these are also new it's not like they were standard and you can pick up a book and you know you can read about it so there's all of that and then there are all the inferences which studying languages has helped us tell about the purity of race or language or so many other things so what was your thinking when you decided to name it Wanderers, Kings, and Merchants? Um, I
1: did decide that. I had uh, two suggestions before. One of them has not been used at all. And I think it's a lovely burning title. And so I can't give it to you. A guy who was driving an Uber I was in, in California, he said, Those are, uh, I said, I He was good at making up names for companies. I said, oh, I am looking for a name for my book. And he said, tell me about the book. And I told him. And he just, just like that, gave me a brilliant name. So I suggested that first to Penguin. And they liked it. But then came the issue that they were invested very heavily in this. They were very, they had great expectations out of it in terms of not just being read by linguists. (laughs) So suddenly, they were, their stakeholders too, so we had a long harangue back and forth with various names suggested and finally they said, this we think will appeal to the most people and that if you put language, it'll, or you mention women, you can't mention women in a title, or only women will buy the book. These uh, kinds of issues are important because it's not kings, it's, uh, it's more women than kings. So then, eventually, at some point, my husband looked up at me and said, You know, it's not a bad title. I asked a few more people who had been with me, Yeah, no, don't let Penguin do this. It's not a bad title. So, it's not a bad (laughs) title, was how it started. And the mere fact that it did um, appeal to people outside of linguistics means that Penguin knew what they were doing. So I can't kind of trust them, it wasn't <laughs> yes. my choice
0: at all, no. All right. No, absolutely. I think us having this conversation here, and neither of Kamini or me being linguistic is a great example to how it's appealed yeah. to so many of us. Um, all right. So I know uh, Kamini has a bunch of questions which deal with other aspects of the book. Go ahead, Kamini. Okay.
2: Thank you. Thanks very much. Uh... Uh, Nidhi, and no, I mean, thank you very much for writing the book, uh, Peggy, because like Nidhi is saying, we are not linguists and a lot of this world is often not available to us, the kind of things you talk about. So thank you for making it available and accessible uh, to us. I mean, I, I found just, just the first chapter, the tiramisu bear, and mm-hmm. the the way you describe the development of the Creole languages, it, it literally blew my mind because it it made sense, and then I could mm-hmm. sort of draw comparisons immediately. I thought mm-hmm. uh, with a lot of different languages, with that uh, distinction between vocabulary and the substratum, and looking at them distinctly, and then drawing patterns. Like if I think of Urdu, I can certainly see a difference between you know vocabulary and the substratum, you know, to my limited understanding. So uh, a lot of it made. You know, made great sense, which which didn't earlier, and I could uh, think for myself, which I would imagine would be, uh, you know, the goal of any book. The power dynamics and the gender dynamics that you describe again, that that really really uh, blew my mind. So there was so much, so much interesting stuff in this book, and I highly recommend it to anyone uh, to read, to to understand, to make sense of languages uh, more generally. I always have thought of myself as not a language person. So in the boxes that we put ourselves in from childhood, I thought I'm one of those people who's not good at languages. I studied Sanskrit as a child, but it was just very difficult. And and I've tried learning other languages, but I found it very difficult. And then having a child, I have a seven-year-old now, watching her pick up languages, she picked up Spanish because of her nanny. Her nanny exclusively spoke in Spanish uh, and my daughter spoke only in English. Actually, at the time, mm-hmm. we've not been we great with Hindi. We are, I have that
1: with right? my daughter too. Yes.
2: So that that was very interesting to see as well how children pick up languages in a very different mm-hmm. uh, way. Their brains are perhaps more malleable. But so it, 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 there's a lot of interesting things. But now let's let you know picking up again from the discussion on migrations. I found your observations regarding the development and evolution of Sanskrit very interesting. And, you know, you bring in some great insights from genetic and evolutionary biology. And again, so wonderful to have interdisciplinary work and see how it can inform each other. So you bring in these insights from genetic and evolutionary biology to explain the evolution of Sanskrit. And so, if you know, to paraphrase, or to for those of you who've not read the book, uh, we now understand that there was a male-driven migration into India. It was gradual in small groups and that the migrating men mixed with the local women these men spoke, you know, one variety of Sanskrit, whether we call it a pure or whatever not, uh, in which Rigveda must have been composed originally, but not written down. And that also is very interesting. So I really spent a lot of time thinking about this distance between composition and writing down and how that changed yes. the language as well. Now, this may be too obvious a point, but one of the things that it made me curious about Uh, was the state of Sanskrit in the places it may have come from. So if we understand Aryans to be people who spoke Sanskrit in some Central Asian areas and eventually moved in small groups of only men towards South Asia, what happened to Sanskrit and the other speakers of Sanskrit in the places where the Aryans come from? And you also mentioned that this migration happened over a fair amount of time because it started as an exploration and it, it happened over many years. So there must have been potentially some continuity of that language in those regions, uh, you know, for the later people, or, or not, maybe. But but I'm, I'm curious to understand, you know, are there, do we know anything about what happened to Sanskrit after and why mm-hmm. no one speaks it in some of these Central Asian regions?
1: See, first of all, it wouldn't have been Sanskrit, right? It would have been something like it. There's a lot going on now, and it's now even more stirred up, roiled, and not not clear what it was. There are people who around who are saying that the people who migrated the Yamnaya took a high language, which is not what they spoke every day, which is not surprising. It would not shock me because the Mughals and the Delhi Sultanate took a high language, Persian, which was not their language and they brought it into India. And uh, what we think of as coming into Urdu, or this Persian vocabulary, these people weren't Persian at all. So was something similar going on there? I suspect not quite as much uh, because even the Prakrit type languages that you get around, um, there was no, there's no real evidence of something else, although there never is actually, is there the people who went into South India, the Nambudris, were not speaking Sanskrit. No one was speaking Sanskrit in the 8th century. What were they speaking? We don't know because people throw things away when they come to new places. What they don't throw away is the, the prestige language. So what was Sanskrit? Was Sanskrit something they had which uh, was also similar to what was precious to the Romans and the Greeks, uh, with all the karaks and all the literature and all that sort of stuff? Or was it similar to what they brought and that we are trying our very best to uncover? I don't know. And there is supposedly some research coming out now. I just managed to get an article from Science on differences between the genetics of the people who came here and what we would have expected them to be. So we have two options. Did Sanskrit come here like Urdu? um, From people who didn't speak Sanskrit but knew it because it was the thing to know and threw away what else they knew? Or did they come speaking something like Sanskrit? And um, that is what passed on the way Persian is what passed on into Urdu and not Uzbek. So these are the things we don't really know, Um, and as for that area, it's obviously, the way they describe it, it sounds like the Ukraine. Now Ukraine um, is a Slavic area. It has a little bit of karaks in its language, but much closer in many ways, even in words to Sanskrit, is one little area there, which is Lithuania. And Lithuanians speak something much more similar to what, is, what would be familiar to Indians. But where to take that? I would have to get into that. Uh, Karak endings, of course, fine. But nay ne- words, actual words are familiar from it. Now, who are these people? And also, if we're talking about a 4,000-year time period, things change in 15 years. 4,000 years to expect that the people who didn't migrate would preserve something, that is a whole, there are quite a lot of things we need to know we don't yet know. But as I said, I threw out two possibilities to you. Three, because I also brought Lithuanian. But all I actually wonder when I go ahead and study, looking back, in the next book to what was there before Sanskrit came, when it came, um, are we going to be dealing with probabilities, that the probability is this is Mm -hmm. what happened, the lesser probability is this, because you see so far back in the past and that we're going by models, which we're trying to build. So if your model is that it happened this, then this, then this, and Well, hello, the data shows it. Um, Then you you might say, okay, this is the the way things happen there. But then we have an alternative model for how Urdu came. It could have happened too. So we may never be able to say with total certainty that this is what happened. But we will have probabilities. And that's not bad. That's not a bad ending i'm i'm a
2: social scientist so i very much understand that it's it's rarely possible to uh, define something with full certainty like it might be in natural sciences so i'm comfortable with probabilities actually and it's it's useful to have those three potential scenarios mm-hmm. and then of course you know a scientist goes further and tries to uh, find more evidence to see which which of these three scenarios might have more evidence uh, than the other i find you know, what you said about Lithuania and Lithuanian hmm. language, that that's quite interesting, actually. Uh, and yeah, it would be wonderful to read more about that and to see if there is in, indeed any systematic uh, evidence of those uh, connections. But, but I will leave that there. And I mean, very, very useful to think about it, certainly. Well,
1: I, I want to ask a I, little I bit now
2: about the I relationship.
1: Hmm. I didn't go to yeah. Lithuania, but I went to Latvia and I found that An Indo-Aryan migration took place there. It's right next to Lithuania. And it was so recent that the last person speaking the language before you got the modern uh, Indo-European language, Latvian, the last person who spoke Livonian, which is similar to Finnish and Estonian, died in 2003. And somebody I know knew her. So in other words, was something happening very recently in that area?
2: wow that that is that is an interesting and provocative thought and again you know it it, i mean this question also makes me think about the death of languages uh and why that happens and how we should think about that but i'll ask you about that in a moment Mm -hmm. um i want to think a little bit more about the relationship between language and culture so some years ago I, i mentioned i'm a social scientist some years ago i was planning to start a research project to understand the time moving, when people have a time moving or an ego moving perspective, how that would explain uh, whether they're likely to take a more long-term orientation towards sustainability goal. And this manifests in the language they use, for example. So for example, if I were to ask someone next Wednesday's meeting has been moved forward two days, answering Monday suggests that you are conceptualizing the meeting moving from Wednesday closer to you in the present moment. That's the time moving perspective. And answering Friday suggests that you're conceptualizing yourself moving towards the meeting Mm -hmm. now further into the future. So that's the ego moving perspective. And we're sort of drawing, we're doing experiments to draw uh, connections between how this, you know, through language, understanding the perspective people take and how that affects their orientation. So thinking a little bit similarly in terms of what the use of language can tell us about people and about culture. If we were to think of culture more broadly as behaviors, norms, institutions, beliefs, and habits, what does language tell us about culture? For example, the fact that in Hindi we say, and you talk about this in the book, Mene khana khaya, mm-hmm. by me, food eaten, as opposed to I ate food. Does this tell us something about how we think of agency in people, about where I am placing importance? Or maybe I'm, or perhaps I'm oh. reading too much into it. No, but but me, I,
1: I have an yeah? answer to that. And uh, it would be interesting to put it your way, were it not for the fact that there's a huge geographical area where this happens, which goes all the way into southern Iran. It's an entire footprint of the people who were the Harappans and their close relatives. And they all did it in exactly the same way. And if anyone knows French, they'll also know that this is a... and Bengali, I'm not sure about Bengali, but definitely Bhojpuri, that a past participle by its very nature is passive. Eaten, food is eaten, but I am not eaten. It's it's done to you, so it's passive. So in French also, that um, if you wanted to say, uh, use something with a past participle, it has to become feminine or masculine um in those tenses and in bhojpuri you have to actively stop it from being passive by adding a little ending on it so so we are aware that certain people in this area uh exercise the option to make the past tense a very different kind of thing and uh, now I'm look. the more I look at it, I find everything in that area and possibly a bit of even Tibetan from what I'm now reading. They have this tendency to see the past in this way, as very different from the present and they don't, uh, the subject relationships change quite a lot. So it's not so much that at a personal level they saw agency differently, but at the geographical level you can use this entire phenomenon in Hindi, it's in Marathi, it's in Konkani, it's in all the languages exactly up to Allahabad. Uh, I need to find out more about what is actually happening in Tibetan. It was in Farsi until a thousand years ago. So, I mean, you have all this thing going on history and geography, melding with this language thing, which gives you also a sense of who the people were. And um, even if they married men coming in from abroad, well, early Sanskrit didn't have it. But by the time we got to Kalidasa, he, Sanskrit most certainly did. All the Ashokan pillars have this, you know, this dharma, dhamma Lippi uh, is written by and he signs. You know, and written by uh Piyadasena uh, Lajina, uh what is this name? Devanam Piyena. It's all ne. You know, ashoka ne Yesablikha. <laughs> it's every oh. single pillar, every single inscription has this. So it's, it's just leaking into the language is still there. Mm. It leaked into Avestan, it was leaked into mm. Persian, and then it lost it. So again, you get glimpses of history and why people make these choices that we don't do this anymore. So, uh, so that's very interesting. Yeah, well, go ahead. still don't know. Why did some parts of India like take up things and other parts not? Why did the, the Hindi zone, all the way into Bengali, have the Bhadha, Jha, Punjabi and everything in Pakistan doesn't have it. Uh, where the Indo-Europeans went first, I have to think about it because this is not gonna be a straightforward thing, a linguistic issue. It has to do with other, other things. Who were the people there? Why did they like it? What was the length of contact? I, I, how late was the contact? so i i'm still in probability realm i'm thinking of my second book more than the first right now
2: <laughs> no that that's useful and you're obviously i mean you're right that there are so many things intersecting together to you know create some of uh, some of the outcomes that we are seeing and that we are discussing so it's it's probably hard to disentangle some of them but i'm also hearing you say that there is perhaps some cultural commonality within mm-hmm. a geographical area yeah. that might sort of determine why we see this change or this this difference, rather. Okay, which is interesting. And, you know, I mean, I was also thinking about this because uh, Nidhi mentioned that uh, Urdu is something we both uh, care about, let's say. And, it, you know, Urdu we usually um, think of as as a language of Tehzeeb. And I was, in fact, there's this shared by Manish Shukla he, and he says, Baat Karne Ka Haseem almost saying that it's through the language that we are learning a certain sensibility, uh, hmm. which I find interesting. But on that point, Nidhi, do you want to ask about Urdu? Otherwise, I will go to the you know darkest question yet uh, about death of languages. Hmm
0: it looks like we have time i'll quickly squeeze in the question so um yeah um i think the references to urdu so there was that was really amazing it was to read about um how amir khusro treated the language so differently from galib that you called out and also i think uh it kind of made me introspect and i shared it with my family and for most of us who speak uh or take great pride in the nuktas which comes. So, kh has to be said in a certain way. And then we read um, that uh, here is a poet who tried to make the language more inclusive by losing uh, the z and you know the kh and all the nuktas things. So, yeah, that, that was very interesting, but um, there's this whole piece. And then I read up a little bit more about how Urdu and Hindi are called twin languages. Uh, they, yeah they're very very similar in a lot of respects uh
1: similar more than similar they were they're they're twins which got separated uh, right through politics yeah right politics
0: right so um but how they have evolved so while hindi is written in the devanagari script um, urdu of course the script is different but i found a lot of other things very unique Peggy like um in urdu you do not have the and the the small matras so uh, furkat, for example would be for a Kata and you need to know the word which is very different from any other language like um oh,
1: really? like english in english we are constantly Yeah. so there is a
0: lot of that in english yeah. but not a lot of that in our um, indian uh, languages like in hindi i, mm-hmm. I often tell uh, my daughter that if you know the alphabet you can read a new word yeah. but in urdu you need to know the word just uh, be to be able to decipher what is intended or you know lazim could mm-hmm. just be lazma so the badi matra but joti Madra is not there you need to have an inherent you need to first know the words and then attempt to read it so I found that so different from no. Hindi and uh... No.
1: Uh, well Chinese is even more if you don't under- recognize the entire symbol you hmm. are nowhere you you can't handle the the words at all so there there's a completely phonetic uh, phonemic writing system there's the one which, has some flexibility, English and Urdu. Turkish written in Persian script, you have to dig back to find out quite a lot more vowels. There are more vowels in, in, in Turkish than there are. There are uh, uh, uh. All of these were not written separately. So in fact, that's one of the reasons why they're probably quite happy not to be using um, the Persian script right now. But if you're dealing with Chinese, there's no, no way You can't, you can read without getting the entire message. One of the stories in my family is of my grandfather, who in the First World War was sent to Russia, with the Canadian Army, and um, he picked up reading Russian, which is like reading Hindi. It's totally phonemic, and he used to read out letters to the Russian soldiers on the front that they had gotten from home. He didn't know what he was reading. So when my my mama told me this, what your grandfather could do. I said, oh, I can do it too. I mean, and it hadn't struck him that it was not a great thing. It was a thing about Russian. It wasn't that my <laughs> grandfather had some special ability, but, um, but and, and it's ultimately anyone who reads Urdu or reads Hindi or reads English or Chinese reads at the same speed. So these are little hiccups that are only there for the learner. In Urdu, yeah. like when now when I first started learning it, uh, these things would stop me, and I would keep wondering which is the vowel that it is, in the reading, mm-hmm. uh, and then later I began to know this is going to be the word, and here and there a new word will stop me. So, actually, reading is a recognition process, and it's you're recognizing the whole sentence you're recognizing the argument the kind of mindset so you have all these clues right and so me right. to read but your comment about how different Ghalib was from Amir Khosrow um if you look at what Ghalib wrote when he was not writing Ghazals it's um pretty straight stuff not vastly different from what anyone you know would be saying right now, if they wrote letters, his letters. So it's interesting that I, I, my feeling about Ghalib is that he was not merely playing around with sounds and new words, he did that too, he was a poet, but he was being cryptic. And being cryptic is something anyone who, dealing with social media where you'll get blocked in Facebook jail for 30 days if you write this, that or the other. You write it and you write it in a way there's no mm. yeah. name mentioned and there's no context mentioned. And if nobody understands anything of what you say, uh, it won't be beautiful, like um, it's poetry, mm. but they will just be lost. It's also the same with um, the Rig Veda. They didn't write anything that totally devious I mean you can get it but what you don't get is the context so Ghalib yeah. and the Rigveda for different reasons the contexts are obscure to us I'm yeah. sure a good friend of Ghalib would be able to get straight inside his mind that I know what he's talking about
0: <laughs> <laughs> right right so just to close the loop on the Hindi and Urdu thing uh, Peggy is it the Persian influence which made Urdu have these aspects that you spoke of are also there in Chinese and Russian, because Hindi doesn't have um, this particular matra um, thing. Are just talking
1: of the writing. The writing no. is like clothes. Um, if you put yourself into a hijab, or you dressed yourself up in a different way, or you dyed your hair, you would look totally different. The writing linguists don't get very excited about, because mm-hmm. look, Turkish once was written in that script, uh, Chagtai was once written in that script. Then it got written in English script. They got written, mm-hmm. meanwhile, in Russian script. All these things have been okay. happening. I'm not worried so much about this the script. I think what made Urdu more Persian, mm-hmm. and we, let's not let's be clear. We're talking of literary Urdu. Huh? Normal people don't throw all that Persian into their normal speech is that the people who were writing the first uh, Ghazals in Urdu had, were already in the habit of writing Persian. They were not trying to make Urdu into Persian. They were trying to take Persian out of the, the language. And then they got stuck from time to time. They didn't have a word for this. They used the word that they knew. It's exactly the same thing which I imagine happened in Malayalam for Sanskrit words coming in. And you'll notice that in Malayalam and in Urdu, all the nice, cute words that came in are nouns. I mean, one or two are not nouns, but hmm. essentially, we're talking of nouns. So basically, that is a very measured, careful way of putting in a nice touch, which is not more than a touch. You know, you don't get any of the verbs of Persian. You get a few occasionally, uh, a preposition, like binaye. Um, This is not an Indian syntax, or um, shahanshaye Hindustan. That's a Persian syntax, but not much of it, very little. Mm -hmm. So basically, it was uh, almost like they were carefully thinking, we are writing this Urdu, which was still called Hindi. It wasn't called Urdu until eighteen seventeen eighty. uh So they, they were carefully thinking, let's keep this Persian thing down. And it's, in fact, in the early ones, there wasn't that much of it. And then it started sneaking up because um, the stuff they were writing was more and more um, similar to what they used to write in children more complicated, more arcane, more literary. So as it became more literary this came up and Ghalib of course took it up to the sky as I said in my <laughs> book because uh, right. he was at a time when he didn't want people to know exactly what he was thinking He actually uh, destroyed some of his work because
0: he knew he'd get in trouble mm. okay. Right good that's that's interesting. I think not too much focus on writing that is the language. and hence the distinction between Hindi and Urdu there at least is not something which is worth um, you know thinking too much. About. All right. Thank you, so much for that. <laughs> All right, coming back to you.
2: yeah, and, and this discussion on writing is interesting also because now a um, lot of uh, uh, you know proponents of Urdu in India. Uh, discuss about the loss of the script, the Urdu script in India, and that we're not, we're not preserving that, and what does it mean? And you also obviously said that Hindi and Urdu are twin languages separated by politics. Yeah. And this politics now, you know, it happens, it's very interesting to me. So I have colleagues in Pakistan who now talk about, they're living in uh, Punjab in Pakistan, and they're saying that now our kids are losing the Punjabi language because the because of the emphasis Mm-hmm. Uh, on Urdu and I have colleagues in Kashmir whose kids are growing up not mm-hmm. knowing Kashmiri and, and learning. So yeah, very, very interesting uh, how languages get passed on, which ones re- remain and not. And I mean, that sort of segues nicely into my final question for you, which is about the death of languages. And you, you say it still at the beginning, uh, at some point in the book, and I'm now quoting, uh, language death then is not about the disappearance of the outer form of language. The term death implies a certain loss of vitality, a vitality the language once derived from having native speakers, which I personally found to be a beautiful explanation of what we mean by death of language. And perhaps, I mean, it's what we see with Sanskrit today. Not, Mm -hmm. Not that it has completely disappeared into incomprehension that there is no speaker of the language, uh but dead in the sense of not being not flourishing, not not really being alive. So that's no, that I found able, very interesting. No,
1: not being yeah? able to take it on its own and evolve. Own. You see, that. it's like um I can speak Bhojpuri, which is my community language, but I'm not a native speaker. Uh mm-hmm. I can fool a lot of people and they say, well, you know, she does speak it. But uh I don't have that I I may even have a bit of the instinct for manipulating Mm. it and playing Mm. around, but I'm not a native speaker and there's nobody anymore who's a native speaker. Um, So to say that the body of the stuff, especially if it's in a book, uh, constitutes the language being there is like, as I said in my book, uh, the cadaver of Mao and Lenin being embalmed and kept they're there but they will do nothing so we delude ourselves so it's about vitality it's and the vitality is about being able to take chart their own course like those two those is it eight cheetahs who came to india yeah uh, i think no, so. the most yeah. the most utterly vital thing they could do to prove that they are evolving well is walk on our streets and give us some sleepless nights but we will not let them do that we want them far away where, so we can look at them through binoculars now as far as i'm concerned uh, uh, i once heard there were some gir lions walking on the streets somewhere in gujarat that's a sign of possibility of something still being alive alive means it's not asking us for permission to walk it's It's in competition with us, too. So that's the thing that we don't understand. And it doesn't need to ask because it has the power to make its own demands. So when you have a language which says, look, you know, Sanskrit is so important that we only find it useful to use Sanskrit in particle physics, then suddenly people will not be asking you, can we use Sanskrit and so on. It will happen. Or like Japanese, Chinese are used in all their science stuff. So that's what vitality is about. Having a little bit of this kept so that you can trot it out and recite uh, a little bit in it is not a living thing. It can yeah. fool people yeah. for a while. If you, if you look at Mao, I've seen him. He looks like he's asleep. Yeah, you can fool people. But it's, he's not asleep. <laughs>
2: That's a great uh, very visual example to think of it but no I, I I see what you mean and I was thinking of the word play around with it mm. which you also you know used uh, a moment ago uh, but also it sounds like the inherent confidence almost in you know in, in inside of a language to to meet the world on its own terms uh, so to say so. And so you, you talk you define that very well I, I thought it made sense to me and you also then talk a little bit about the process of uh, death of language which is Extinction happens this is page 59. Extinction happens not because the species is diseased or unfit or, follow, or following an un- inbuilt timetable that defines its lifespan. It happens because the environment has changed too fast and too drastically for the species to adapt. And of course, now I start drawing parallels with mm-hmm. you know, evolutionary uh, biology as well. But that's then you' I end think the book. I think, I think that's it's from there, actually. That makes sense. And then, but you then end the book with this quote, uh, languages are like those canaries that go with miners into dark paths that are full of danger. Like those canaries, they die first, long before we humans can sense that the air has begun to go bad. When languages die, it is an omen of things to come that are still beyond our range of vision. And I wanted, I was hoping, you know, you could talk a bit more about this, so, you know, why do we lament the death of languages what does it really mean what are the implications of this so if you are drawing a parallel from evolutionary biology we know that you know for example bees are intricately interconnected with our natural ecosystem so the death of bees has a very direct impact uh, on the rest of the ecosystem what happens to the society when languages die and you know what should we feel about that?
1: Okay, there are two things going on. One is what you mentioned, and what, what we, I was trying to put across, that of course languages are like those bees, are like those canaries, and that we, whatever happens to them today will happen to us not too far down the road, but I don't think that's the real reason most people get worried. There's a terrible feeling if you are an artist, you will understand it straight away. People don't care about the artist and the process and whatever they are going through. And so they care about the product and language is a product. It doesn't matter anymore who speaks it, you can die. Uh, They don't mind if all the tribal speaking some language or the other actually die out they think the language will be there because the product in a book on tapes or whatever is there for us to study or to feel we did not let go of it but that was not it it's like um i give away paintings that i do and people say but aren't they valuable i said no they experience i live through that and it's over and now you can have the painting uh you're not going to take away what it It was like making it. So similarly, the language, people hate the idea that products go. So the coal that is uh, found at the bottom of the ocean from the Titanic has a big market value. So, and so will languages. I don't like that aspect of it. I don't want the cheetahs sitting in that little area carefully manu- manicured for them I don't regard that as vitality as I said I prefer the lions walking on the streets of Rajkot uh, as a sign of 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 vitality so and you, you kind of get what I mean that uh yeah. a world which has all these things alive as a world that has them in competition with you. The day that you really feel that only knowing English is going to be a very big problem in India because you're in the South and you need to learn Malayalam, which people do, and they learn it very fast. Um, That's a much more living world to me. It's not that we have it there as a nice option for the way things were, but now let's continue our lives all speaking English. Uh, I like the idea that anything that's alive can give us a sleepless night. to change that's, the
2: world. That's that's a beautiful note. I think uh, to end our conversation, it's been an hour, and we could continue talking for you know for at least another hour yet. Uh, but 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 we must end at some point. So thank you so much, Peggy, for mm-hmm. such a thoughtful conversation. And such an amazing book that you know really opens the mind to thinking about languages in a systematic way, in a new way, packed with insights that we wouldn't otherwise have access to. I know that some of the things you talked about later in your book, I mentioned earlier, they help me understand my daughter's language struggles uh, with Hindi a lot better. And she's not able to say ghar, so she really tries very hard to say he and, and really struggles with that. And also, interestingly, I asked her to translate English sentences to Hindi and she preserves the order of the words in English, even you know, as she tries to translate because she knows some of the words now. Um, going back to your title, I like, think again about the wanderers, the kings, and the merchants who moved from one place to another, and the women who anchored the process uh, of language change that happened through through this. So that that is obviously very exciting. But this is not necessarily a romantic thought because we know that there was often a power imbalance oh, uh, underpinning this process and that seems to also have been highly gendered in fact you write uh quote makes mixed, mixed languages are about power shifts not about little people migrating as individuals which is of course interesting yet i think the hopeful in me also sees something about the idea of assimilation here of human spirit that like you're saying that fights even when oppressed mm-hmm. uh like in the case of Creole languages and finds finds ways to cope you know a great example like i was saying is the emergence of the creole languages and despite the challenges so english really i think a lot about i do talks with a lot of people economists and i've started to think about doing them in hindi uh, but when i talk to people who are studying in hindi medium schools in india and i say i think i should do them in hindi because they will be accessible to you they push back a bit because they say no we need to know english you know we need to somehow learn english that's what's important to us and That's interesting to me as well, because whatever said and done, access to English and understanding English does open up a new economic and social world for them. And it is for Hindi perhaps to, you know, find a way to fight, uh, make its own fight. Yeah.
1: It's an, an issue that if maybe they need to learn English, maybe everyone needs to access whatever worlds we can touch. But the problem is when you are so keen to learn english that it doesn't matter to you that you haven't understood what's been said to you and i have been mentioning this to one or two people like when you try to teach an english medium in the government schools why don't you put a hindi translation for the teacher because then the teacher will what what do people do when they don't know what's happening they nod they let it pass, and they probably don't benefit from something that could have been important. So there's this issue that yes, we need them to learn English, but how much they miss and, and get left out of uh, when they don't understand it, can we have a bit of both?
2: No, absolutely. And your examples of the RTE and, you know, how that's affecting the students who are in mixed classrooms that was really quite revelationary uh, to me as well. The difference in confidence in particular, mm. that is that is something for us to think about. As we draw this podcast to an end, I think about the purpose of language. And it seems it is to facilitate a connection. Sometimes with ourselves, you know, through giving thoughts, our thoughts a shape, a form, a tangible form. And sometimes with others. So, you know, at the end of the day, this is a beautiful connection. To be able to make this connection is, is something love. Like, and I will end with this share from your chapter on Urdu and Hindi uh, this is a share by Hakeem Aghajan Esh. so thank you very much thank Peggy you. for taking us on this journey so that we could understand better the world of languages and how they brought people together
0: Thank you so much, everyone, for listening in. We'll be back again with another episode. Thank you so much, Peggy, for writing the book and for this wonderful conversation.